gentlemen we are here for curtain call two this is the paul pod and we have our first guest the illustrious infamous and famous vice chairman of interscope records steve berman wow that's incredible paul thank you so much for that thanks for joining my show so the purpose of this conversation is to talk about you and your relationship to Eminem as we look back on his career. And today we are going to primarily focus on the skits that you appear on the Eminem albums and the D12 album. But before we even get into that, let's talk about something else. A lot of people confuse me and you, and it's because we're both sort of these executive voices that have appeared on Eminem albums in the past. So I started off on the Slim Shady LP doing my skit, and I had skits on the next couple of albums. And you came in on the Marshall Mathers LP, the second album. So we both had skits on that album. So it can be confusing, but we're not the same person, right? Sometimes I wish we were the same person, but we are clearly different people. Right. And you have similar interests. We have similar interests. Yes, but you work for Interscope, and you have ever since I've known you and I work for Marshall as his manager. So let's get that out of the way. We're not the same person, although we've appeared on skits and we've both been similar antagonistic voices to whatever story Marshall's telling during that particular program or album. We are clearly different people, but we know about you when I say we, me and Marshall before we even signed to Interscope and we, before we did M's deal with Interscope because you had already become somewhat of a public figure because of your appearance in the Dre Day video, correct? That is correct, Paul. So in that video, you played a character. You didn't play yourself. Yeah, I, I would characterize it as through Dre's vision at the time, I was playing the extreme version of a scumbag record executive. Right. You were the guy who was sitting at the desk who was offering basically a horrible one-sided arrangement in favor of the record company, record executive as devil to the guy who was playing Easy e in the video, correct? Correct. So give us a couple of those lines. Oh, so pe- just in case people forgot, the brilliance that you exhibited in that video. You want a new house, a new car? And I'm going to make you rich. I work for you, right? I work for you. So that's where we first knew about Steve Berman was from that video. Didn't know who he was, but when we met him, we were like, you're the guy from the video. This is incredible. Why did they pick you? That's a great question. The actor that they had hired dropped out. Oh, wow. And the night before... The video was to be shot. I got a phone call 
saying, do you want to go be in this video? And the video at the time, you know, not, nothing but a G thing was such a powerful force and culture. And Dre Day was just supposed to be a bridge track, but the movement became so powerful. And I thought it was just going to be this underground video. And it was presented to me, go downtown, show up for this video. Dre is directing. Dre trusts that you'll show up. And I'm like, I'm in. And they told me I would be there a couple hours. And I ended up being there 14 hours Mm -hmm. and a follow-up day for a shoot. But it was the first time I firsthand saw the genius and the brilliance of Dre at work. Like every scene, every look, every angle. He was more than directing. He was really immersed in the moment and he brought me along for the ride. Yeah, he's absolutely very hands-on in the creative process, no question about it, as we we learned later on. So we knew you from that and we got to know you more as your real-life persona, which is as this sort of very connected skilled, regarded, marketing genius figure at the label. And at some point, Marshall wanted to bring a voice onto his records from the label to play an antagonistic character on his albums. But before we get into that, tell me about your earliest memories meeting Marshall, him going up to Interscope, playing you music, talking to him. What was that like? And this isn't the character version that we hear on the albums. This is the real deal. I believe they're connected because what I remember is this was such an important signing to Jimmy Iovine, who running Interscope. And it was a very exciting moment. And it was the conference room. And it felt very much like a boardroom of what you would think boardroom of a record company would feel like at the time. And Marshall was sitting at one end of the table with you and Dre was there and Jimmy and cast the characters are probably about 12, 13 people in the room. I really remember this. And halfway through the meeting, Marshall locked on to me and I got really uncomfortable and you and I had met already, but that was the first time meeting Marshall. So is this prior to the Slim Shady LP? Yes. Okay, so yes. we're talking like 98. I think you had started working with Trey, but you had music to share. And okay. you were playing some music. And listening to music, and we're talking, and no one had any idea it was going to become what it became and how it took over culture. But at the moment, it was just very exciting. And it was a great energy in the room. But Marshall locked on. And at the end of the meeting, you and him came up to me and he looked at me and he said, you're a real person. And I think he said, or you said, are we being punked? You know, you thought it was some game tied to the Dre Day video. And I explained myself, no, I actually, the marketing and sales for Interscope at the time, that was my title. And I'm here to help get your record into record stores and get visibility and try to work with Paul to come up with great marketing ideas to support you. And it it was a great moment and memory in my career that I'll never forget because it was that, that look halfway through the meeting and what the two of you said after the meeting about being punk that will stick with me forever. So that couldn't have been the first time though, that people had recognized you from that video and 
were confused. They didn't understand, oh, he played this kind of character, but he's actually a real guy, too. It was a crazy journey, honestly, Paul, for me, because I never want, wanted or want the attention of being out in front. My whole dream in life was to be able to be behind and to be able to work with artists like Marshall, people like you. That's all I ever dreamed about. And it was so interesting for me because especially we were back and forth to New York all the time during that period. And in New York, I would be walking down the streets and kids would come up to me and like, you're the guy from the Dre video. It would be nonstop. So in the public view of it, it was, it blew my mind and it was uncomfortable. And it was always, I always felt, I would talk to anybody. I felt like anybody who would take the time to, to say something deserved that respect because they were all fans of Dre and Snoop. On the business side of it, it was always a joke in the meeting. And it would be like, no, I'm a serious guy. Take me serious. Let's figure this out. Whatever business issue we were dealing with. And people would constantly joke about it. But that video became such a big moment in culture. Everybody knew what it was. And from that point on, it was something I was actually really proud to be part of. Yeah. For sure, as you should be. It's a classic moment. And you actually had a really memorable performance. So it's incredible. So moving beyond that, we get into Marshall's second album, right? Marshall Mathers LP. So we're jumping ahead a little bit. And when we released the Slim Shady LP, there was obviously some controversy surrounding Marshall, as there continued to be throughout the years. Him being the provocative, rabble-rousing public figure that he is, often polarizing, especially back then. Where did you? Where do you remember him or I approaching you about? recording a skit for the Marshall Mathers LP? What I remember is it was you, Paul, because at that time, Marshall seemed so tunnel vision in the art and the image. And I began to learn, and this is a compliment that I paid to you on this podcast where I thought we were talking about delicatessens, but... That's my other podcast. This is Paul Pod. Okay. Yeah. I Hopefully, if I do well enough on this one, I'll end up on that one. But, but I pay the compliment that I had never seen in my career to that point a partnership that was so connected in terms of how to creatively tell the story of Marshall, of Eminem, of Slim. And I remember sitting down with you both. We were framing some of the stuff around the album, and then he left. And then you said to me, we have an idea of a skit we want to do with you on this album. Right. So just so people know, Steve was in these skits, He's playing against type, just as, just as he was in the Dre Day video, because Steve is not the 
angry, ornery, loudmouth record executive in real life. Steve is much more affable. He's the guy that wants everybody to have a good time and hold hands and, and do things together and win. So we created this sort of character of Steve Berman as Steve Berman, but it wasn't Steve Berman. It was a sort of real like record company foil. And you were the guy that was trying to go against what Marshall wanted to do in the sense that you felt like as the character, he was doing himself a disservice by behaving the way he was behaving and creating the kind of music he was creating. I remember about a year and a half or so into working at Interscope, we were at a record convention in Chicago. And I was sitting with Jimmy and we had gotten to know each other pretty well at this point. Jimmy's rhythm was speaking 20 times a day, first call by 6 a.m., last call whenever we finished. could be 10, 11, midnight. Yeah, he's, he's relentless. Yeah, and Jimmy's sitting there with me and he pulls out a piece of paper and he draws a straight line. Okay. He says, Steve, this is you. And he said, what I'm going to really work hard to do and then he draws all these squiggly lines. He goes, I'm going to bring some of that into your life. And, and it took me a long time to really understand that. Again, my dream in life was to be able to have a career in this business and be able to work with artists, fight for artists, have relationships where we would collaborate. I always felt like I had a responsibility to execute the vision and unless I was fighting as hard as, in your case, you and Marshall every day, I'd be letting you guys down. I still feel that today. And so that, but that sentiment and that type of person that you really are is not what you were playing. So what we needed was somebody to try to put Marshall in his place. That's the character you were playing. Like, I'm the record company guy. I don't care who you are, big rock star. You're going to listen to me, and I'm going to tell you the way things are going here. That's exactly it. And I loved it because it was fun to step into that role. You gave me something that I had always seen as something I would never want to be and never want to touch, but you let me touch it in a way that was a lot of fun. So when we created the skit and we wrote it, with that type of character in mind, we also wanted to bring real life elements into it. So we talked about actual people that you would have to deal with when you were setting up an album and when you're out there selling an album and getting orders for the album, you would talk to people like Violet Brown at the time, who was the head of one of the biggest record chains on the West Coast, right? And you would talk to Tower Records, right? And you would say, hey, we've got this Eminem project coming. It's great. We've got this single. It's going to be bigger than my name is. And you'd hype it all up and you wouldn't reveal what the potential pitfalls might be. You didn't tell them that there's going to be people picketing or anything like that. But the character that you were playing was setting that up and letting everybody know, hey, we know that people are going to react a certain way to this record. And the point was that 
we wanted people to know that we knew what we were doing. That was the whole idea. Marshall wanted people to know, listen, I'm not reckless completely. I understand what this is. I understand the way people are going to react. And I want you to know that I understand that. So my character that I played in the skits was always the sort of adult in the room, right? I heard the album and we got to talk or stop shooting your gun off in the back of the studio. I was like the adult in the room. Um, Paul, listen, Joel just called me and he told me you're in the fucking back behind the studio shooting your gun off in the air like it's a shooting range. I told you not to fucking bring your gun around like an idiot outside of your home. You're going to get yourself in trouble. Don't bring your gun outside of your home. You can't carry it on you. Leave your fucking gun at home. And you were like playing the role of the record company saying, we know where this is going to go. We know people are going to react negatively to what you're doing and this is going to be outrageous and this is going to cause problems and you got to fucking stop it. So that was the role you were playing. So what's up? How's orders looking for the first week? It would be better if you gave me nothing at all. This album is less than nothing. I can't sell this fucking record. Do you know what's happening to me out there? What's the problem? Violet Brown told me to go fuck myself. Who's Violet? Tower Records told me to shove this record up my ass. Do you know what it feels like to be told to have a record shoved up your ass? I'm gonna lose my fucking job over this. Do you know why Dre's record was so successful? He's rapping about big screen TVs, blunts, 40s, and bitches. You're rapping about homosexuals and Vicodin. I, mean, I can't sell this shit. Wait, Either change the record or it's not coming out. I, now get the fuck out of my office. What am I spo- now? So that was the point. And I think we made it. And I think it was successful. And I think it was entertaining. And I think that but those skits that we loved, because even when I meet people today that are fans of Marshall's and there's, they're like, oh, you're the guy in the skits. I remember when you first came to me and this was you and I, Paul, really riffing back and forth. And when you explained it to me, you wanted it to feel real. Like you wanted it. You wanted me to be that character that I became on those records. And we really talked about that. And at the time, Violet Brown was the buyer for warehouse records. Right. They were the center of the target of hip hop music in the world. Primarily West Coast though were the stores right primarily west coast were the stores but if it broke out of the west coast they were the tastemakers they were the tastemakers it was a big chain at the time it yeah was, you know, huge it was hundreds of stores and but if you got it right there then it became to your point tastemaker domino effect when you and i were talking it through they call them influencers now yeah. she was an influencer for the rest of the record companies for the rest of the record stores as a buyer. She would have millions of followers. She was the E.F. Hutton of buyers. (laughs) So the more that we got into going back and forth on that, the easier it became to frame it the way that, that Marshall and you saw what you wanted the outcome to be. We wanted it to be funny and we wanted it to be entertaining at the same time. So we came up with ridiculous shit for you to say. And a lot of times, I don't know if you get this, but a lot of times people say to me, are those real? Are those calls real? And the answer is always the same, which is the truth. They're not real because they're recreated, but the sentiment was real and their conversations that were had. I did tell him to stop taking his gun around and he was shooting it off behind the studio. 
And I did react a certain way to some of the stuff on the record. And I did have stuff to say to him about it because I did need to be the adult. When it came to you, did anybody ever think that those were real conversations? Yeah, there were times when people would come up to me and say, how could you speak to Marshall like that? <laughs> right, Because so they thought it was real. And they thought it was real. And I would be like, no, you don't understand. We're just trying to tell a story here. And I would get this feedback. No, but that's not okay to speak to him like that. Right. No, but it's not like real. It's a story. It's, and it was, those are great memories and great conversations. Yeah. So playing against type, really having it in for Marshall, acting a lot like you were his boss in a way, right? Yeah, it's funny because I always felt the way that that the skits were constructed and the way they were written, that it was a role that could never exist. Like it, it, So it's true. Just, he would turn yeah. it off to that immediately and he would not. He wouldn't talk to a person like that. They wouldn't I, be, they wouldn't get in the room with, right. wouldn't be allowed to. I don't think, I don't think I would exist as who I am today if that would have been who I was. Like, I really feel that. So Marshall Mathers LP comes out Huge success, obviously beyond everybody's wildest imagination. And we form Shady Records. And we actually formed it, I think, just prior to the Marshall Mathers LP. But we signed D12. And that's the first release on Shady Records. And on the D12 album is the second appearance of Steve Berman in a skit, correct? That is correct, Paul. So in that skit, you play a similar role but it almost feels like it was an amped up version of it. Hey, Steve, uh, Vanessa said you wanted to see me. What's up? Marshall, I can call you Marshall, right? Uh, sure. Good. Sit the fuck down for a second. Okay. Do you just fucking hate me? I hate you. What, what the fuck have I ever done to you? Your last record, we got lucky. This D12 album is fucked. What's wrong? I don't want to rape my grandmother. I don't want to have sex with pit bulls. I want to roll on dubs. I want to throw bows. I want to rock Prada. Rock Prada? And who the fuck is this bizarre guy? What do you mean? Do you need a CAT scan? Where the fuck did you find this guy? I, I mean, I've known him for like... This album's never coming out. Steve, you've only heard one song. Fuck you. Get the fuck out of here. Oh, no! Okay! Okay! Shit! If you listen to your tone on the Marshall Mathers LP compared to the D12 album, you're much more of a dick. I think it's because you were more comfortable doing that role and that you had done it already. And you were just much more assertive. What I remember, it's funny that you say this because I have that written down. I have what you and I wrote together, written down and framed. The handwritten notes with the script. This, as, as we scripted it out. And when... Belongs in a museum. I, and when you and I... We're going back in the studio. Marshall was in the studio and we're recording. And again, this is not, it's familiar territory for me to be at a recording studio, supporting an artist, listening to where they are in their creative journey, talking about 
how we're going to roll the record out. Yeah. It's, it's a privilege for me to step into where the art is actually happening. Sure. To sit in the booth. It's a whole different thing. It's, it's a whole different thing. And what I remember in this one was you couldn't stop laughing because <laughs> I couldn't get it. I just, you were like, I remember, yeah, the lines were, we had to do them very repetitively. Right. We had to do them over and over again. And the part that I remember most about that skit was about bizarre. Who the fuck is this bizarre guy? You need a fucking CAT scan. Yeah. Where'd you find this guy? You need a CAT scan. What's wrong with you? How could you put this guy on a record? Because again, we knew that bizarre was saying the most outlandish, outrageous, offensive stuff that we could, that he could think of on that album. So you went there. The other part I remember about that skit was the line about, don't think this is real. Like you got lucky last time. We got lucky. Like this isn't, you're not anything. Like we got lucky here. Now you're giving me this one. And I'm going to fucking lose my job. Like, I'm over. You're not getting away with it this time. On the first one, you were like, get out now. And on on the D12 album, you're screaming at him. Get out now. It was a whole new level. I wanted so badly. This is really at the core of it for me. I wanted so badly for you and Marshall to feel good about what I was doing, like it felt like I had a real responsibility not to fuck this up. And I remember in that recording, you were just pushing me and I was going against everything in my nature of what I would ever say, but yeah. I just let go. And, and I love the way that one came out. Love that. It came out great. And even more of a jerk record company executive on the D12 album than on the Marshall Mathers LP. And then we get to the next Eminem album, which was the Eminem show. Yeah. So in the Eminem show, there's another Steve Berman skit. And this is the third part of a trilogy of Steve Berman skits. And Marshall decided he'd had enough. Not in real life, but as the character on the album that he was playing, which a lot of people don't understand that Often he is playing a character. Do you remember the conversation about how that skit was going to go? I just remember that I couldn't stop laughing when I was recording that one. Because what Marshall decided was that you were going to die. And he wasn't going to put up with it anymore. And he was just going to kill Steve Berman. So that skit was a quick one. And he decides that his character who's playing was going to bring a gun into the, to your office and just off you. I don't even think you had a chance to say much. Yeah. I remember I was saying, I, I was on the phone with Dre. I was like, Dre, I got to call you back. And I hang up. And then I remember, you know, something about like, I got the album from upstairs. And then you hear the gun cock and the chamber and he shoots me. And I'm like, and it's the most incredible album I've ever heard <laughs> right so you weren't even gonna in that skit you weren't even gonna admonish him you were gonna praise him i had crossed over at that point you were like we've had enough success i'm cool this music's great but too late marshall didn't know that and he decided that he didn't need you around anymore it's ridiculous i can't believe it oh, hold on a minute M, what up have a seat dre i'll call you back what now I don't even know where to start. Okay. I got the album from upstairs, 
And, and this is by far the most <laughs> incredible thing I've ever heard. So, obviously, people didn't think that was real. At least I hope they didn't. <laughs> right? Did it? Did people come up to you after the release of that album and say, "Oh, I can't believe Eminem killed you on your own album"? Yeah, people are like, "I cannot believe he shot you." I cannot believe you shot you. And the truth for me is I was always holding out hope that I got saved. I remember thinking that. But there were so many times where people came up to me, man, I can't believe he shot you. I can't believe it's over. I don't think we ever saw a body. I don't think we ever talked about Steve actually died. He was shot. Who knows what the future holds? I was so anxious when we were finally coming to relapse. And I remember having the conversation with you about that. And you were like, you lived, right? You lived. And it was such a moment for me. Like, I felt like really redemption. Like, I made it. Like, I really lived. And I feel like that's the one that took it, like, all the way. All the way to the most extreme place where I've been shot. I'm clearly messed up. M finally reappears. And I start going at him about, oh, poor me. And just that, I feel like I, I reverted back to the worst version of the just the horrible, mean record executive that was just not going to take anything from this guy. That was like the sequel. That was like Terminator 2. If the first three were like one movie, Terminator, like the, the trilogy, what made up Terminator, this was Terminator 2. This was the revenge of Steve Berman. Mr. Berman? What? We have Eminem here to see you. About fucking time. Send him in. Steve. Good to see you, man. Um, hey, well, I just... look who decided to show his face. I hope you've had fun in the last four years. Look, man, I apologize again for... For shooting me? Do you know I lost the use of my right arm? Again, it was a mistake. It was a terrible mistake. Are you wearing a bulletproof vest? And then you go and do what? Hide out? Stay in Detroit for almost five years while the music industry melts the fuck down? Do you know how many people lost their jobs because of your fucking vacation? Well, that's actually why I'm here. I was going to put out some new music and I wanted to play it for you and get your opinion. Do I really need to hear it? Let me guess. Another album about poor me. I'm so famous it has ruined my rich little life and I'm such a tortured artist. Let me make music about it and my tragic love life. Am I on to something here? Come on, man. It's not like that. You know what? Just hand the fucking thing over. I'm done talking to you. Think you can just come and go as you please. Big selfish superstar. Steve, I had a drug problem. Oh, poor me. I had a drug problem. Who hasn't had a drug problem in this town? You know what? Hey, hey, hey. Just lay this shit down on my whoa, desk and get whoa, the fuck out. Whoa, whoa, Jesus Christ, man. All right, all right, here, fine. What's this shit? Two CDs? That's what I've been trying to tell you, man. It's two albums. Just get out. All right. Get the fuck out. All right, man. See you later. Just no sympathy at all. No, not giving him one break. Yeah, and I think that for his part, I think he wanted to bring you back because he felt like he was going there again on that album. 
So we right. needed, he needed your voice back. And I think that it was very effective. It's interesting to look at it through that lens of where he was at creatively at that point and how important for all of us Relapse was. That album was coming out. And I think it, it gave all of us a little bit of a setback to know that he's not some big selfish superstar. He's a real person and really a real artist. And he was going to stick to who he was and who he is. And I feel like that's what that kind of period in history was to me and the importance of that time. The business had taken a dramatic shift. Sure. And part of what was in that skit was telling that story, like a double CD. Like, what are we talking about here? I'm having a hard enough time selling a single. Right. And And for those that don't know, at the time we were under the impression that we were going to release a relapse too. And that was going to follow six months after the release of the first one. The problem was we had a leak. A bunch of material had leaked out and Marshall decided, you know what? I don't think this is going to be a relapse too. So we pivot and we released the records that hadn't leaked out on relapse refill, which was like a repack. Now they call them deluxe editions, but it was a repack of the album. Correct. So ends up not being a relapse too. But that was the purpose of that conversation in the two CDs. So where do you go from here? Again, Paul, I'm always holding out. I really am. I feel like it is a, again, as I said earlier, a privilege to be part of the art and the storytelling. And wherever I can play a role in that, to help him deliver the message however he wants and feels I'm all in and I'm always waiting for that call because I know I'll be there anytime for that. And I think that's, look, that's my journey in it. I think where Marshall went after relapse and refill creatively was just to such extraordinary heights of how the connection. I remember the these moments that stick with you and you hope they never leave your brain is when you had delivered recovery. You had delivered the album. We were already, you know, into manufacturing and we were into the marketing plan and you flew into LA and you came and got me and I went up to Jimmy's office with you and Jimmy was coming from the other side of town. And you played Love the Way You Lie for the first time. Right. Off that album. And everything was turned in. Like everything was done. Correct? Yeah. That was a late edition for sure. But I'll we, never forget that moment. Yeah. We knew what we had. We knew what we had. And that was a special sort of late delivery for that project, which is obviously included on Curtain Call 2. You're right, though. The music made a shift on recovery. Didn't really call for a Steve Berman skit. Who knows what the future is going to hold? And I haven't spoken to Marshall about it. I haven't been on a skit in a minute, which is fine. I'm going to figure out another way to make a living in the meantime. Like yourself. Whoa, 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 wait a second. Yeah. You got paid on these skits? Is well, that what you're telling me? I get my wait, ASCAP wait, check. So I'm, maybe I need to be that character, Paul. Yeah, yeah. Listen, it's about $300 a year. 
Wow. And uh, it's better than a sharp stick in the ass. You and I got to talk offline. Maybe we got something here. Yeah. You got to get your ass cap or BMI set up. But regardless, who knows what the future holds? By the time we get to curtain call three, maybe there will be multiple more Steve Berman skits, more Paul Rosenberg skits, and we'll have more to talk about on the next Steve Berman and Paul Rosenberg Paul pod for curtain call three. Steve, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day to talk about this nonsense. And if you've got one last thing to say, what would it be? Paul, it's an honor to take this journey with you and with Marshall. I don't take one minute of one hour of one day of one week of one month of one year of this journey for granted. It has been absolutely incredible. And I can't wait for us to do a Paul cast at a deli for a curtain call three. That will be a great day. If Langer's is still open, that's where we'll be. I'm buying. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for checking out the Paul pod. My name's Paul Rosenberg. I've been joined today by the wonderful Steve Berman. And we're here to celebrate the release of Curtain Call 2. You can listen to it on your favorite streaming platforms. Until next time, take it easy. Paul, 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 Pa